We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. The Wall Street Business Network presents Rob Black and Your Money, your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finances, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800 516 1220. So call in. We'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now, to start your day with the latest news and market commentary, here's Rob Black on the Wall Street Business Network. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Anything you want to talk about, we can talk about. I love the holiday season because we get to slow things down and we get to kind of like think about investing and think about real estate and think about what we're going to do the following year. I want to talk a little bit about the history of real estate. I was trying to figure it all out. You know, the word mortgage has a French word mort for death in it. And, you know, that's okay. I got that. But the earliest history of real estate was recorded in cave drawings. I'm not sure if you knew this. Uh, there was a couple open houses involving cave maker Jezebels, who sent the best-looking Homo erectus from the tribe out to find perfect pelts. And they opened their caves to other tribes of Homo erectus. But it's a vicious rumor that the first house cave sold for seven pelts, but it actually went for eight pelts. So clearly, I'm not feeling well today. No, no. (laughs) Clearly, I'm going to talk about real estate, because do you know when the first open house was in America? It was in 1947 in an area called Levittown, New York. Um, And I'm looking at some of the brochures for it, and it's pretty fascinating to look at. Um, You know, every modern city convenience plus country comfort. The house was selling for eighty four hundred dollars, eighty four ninety, and uh, it, it talks about you know the price uh, sixty seven dollars a month, no cash required from veterans. Um, prices and terms were inside the brochure. I told you the plot size was seventy by a hundred. Uh, plot price was ten thousand nine hundred and ninety. It's it's pretty crazy to think you know this is where the real realty industry really started to come from. Um, so it's a little look at history and a little look at realtors. You know that realtors don't have to have in some states a GED and or a high school education. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, at some point in uh, the the guidelines for becoming a realtor um, had changed. Uh, in the lending industry, it's kind of the same way as well. So it's kind of hit and miss on who you get, and it just means you have to go through a little bit more of a um, screening process when you're looking at who you're working with. Just and just because they've been in the business for a long time doesn't necessarily mean that they're you know that that sharpest tool in the shed, so to speak. It turns out that the first initial open house was a flop because the attendees were all neighbors who lived in the exact replica of that same house down the street. I guess what do you do? Change the furniture and the color, right? You probably do. Um, Read that. Um, So open houses, you know, you got the real estate agent. Uh, You got an ingenious agent 
sneaking out of the office, uh, trying to capture prospects. Early professionals were amazed at what they learned when they actually walked through someone's house and paid attention. So having an agent go through your house, having an agent help you sell a home, having an agent help you buy a home, they started figuring it out. Again, this was about 1947. The average home cost about $13,000 in 1947. Now, we can go back even further in history and find out a little bit more about real estate agents and real estate. When in, 19, in 1890, there was a failed attempt to start a National Real Estate Association. Um, it's not, a, you know, a terrible jump to, you know, think that that's the first year that a used car lot opened up in Catskill, New York. So a real estate association, why do you think we have a real estate association, Tony? Well, I think it's to set some standards. Right. Um, you know, keep things consistent so that uh, one buyer could go over to one city and go through the same kind of transaction and feel like they're getting the same kind of treatment as far as the laws are concerned and the kind of paperwork. And uh, it also can help uh, with price gouging. And also, I think there's, you know, what, what I want to add is my first comment. In most states, you don't need a GED or a high school diploma to be a real estate agent. So if you have a real estate association, they could kind of say, look at us. We do have standards and look at us. You know, uh, we are a professional group. We've been educated, um, and that's not good. But that's just me being honest with why there's a National Real Estate Association. Um, I know probably some of the dumbest people on the planet um, are real estate agents. Some of the dumbest people on the planet that I know, I'm not saying, I'm not tying it universal. I'm saying in my personal world. Um, but then some of them are very bright and go-getters. Um, I'm not going to say. I, I, the one thing I do want to say is that just because you – you may get that impression from your realtor. doesn't mean they're not going to do a good job for you. I agree. Um, but it, it still goes through the whole interviewing process and, and working with it. And, it. and really what that association does, too, it, it gives that person, whether or not they're educated or not, right. a, a good source for um, and a good background, all of the support that they need in order to get things done. Now, most people don't think it's that difficult to sell a house, but it really can be with the kind of with the marketing that they've set. You know, one thing that the association has done is led to some super, you know, really good marketing. And we get a lot of buyer. Imagine in the old days not being able to find houses that are in a different city, and you, know, you can go online and do. I mean, there's some things that the association well, the has done. Cha- the internet changed. And the internet changed it, of course. Well, and the same thing with the car industry and so on. Real estate agents used to carry around big books of open houses, and they'd come to your house with this big binder. Of, oh, we got one over yeah. here in Stockton. Our, our, the, where, where I live, the realtor's office, they, they still have that. When okay. you walk in, there's still a big book with pictures and prices oh, yeah. right at the bottom. Yeah, they still do it. And now they'll, they'll print like magazines for luxury homes, like you know, twenty million dollar homes, because they want you to go home and flip through it and potentially buy or. Maybe put it on a coffee table and one of your neighbors will potentially buy. But um, off topic on this a little bit, but on the real estate agents, I don't like the uh, – whenever I go into purchase a place, I want someone who's lived in that neighborhood or in that city and worked in that city. I don't want – if someone's really good looking, I don't want them. It's it's. I know that sounds horrible, but if they show up in a $100,000 car, I have no interest. If they show up in a pimped-out Escalade that's awesome – I have no interest. I want the person who's been in that market for 40 years, who knows every street, who knows the schools, who knows the history, um, the good neighborhoods, the bad neighborhoods. I want a mom selling me real estate um, versus a young person who's hot and sexy. Now, again, the Internet's for hot and sexy people in my world. I see plenty of real estate deals. I want someone who's who's a little um, – got some tire tracks on them, got some, some weather on their tires, so to speak. So, anyway, back to – the history of real estate. In 1900, over 75% of Americans chose not to own a home. But by 1908, because the National Association of Real Estate Exchanges was founded to try to get people with the same type of purpose, that started to change. So in the 1900s, people are like, hey, we can make money selling real estate, but no one wants to own real estate, so we better come up with a group that can put out some bylaws and, and start marketing the, the perks, the positives of owning real estate. So there is a big kind of a group mentality. 1913 was a big year for real estate. The Federal Reserve Bank was created, providing doomsday profits with a chance to hone their prognosticating skills. That's a tough word for me to say. With interest rate hikes. And to this day, we still look, what are the Feds going to do with interest rates? The term realtor was first muttered about two years after that. 
Um, and that's when all the start, fights start. Is it realtor? Is it realtor? How do you say it? Let's get this on record. Realtor. Okay. So it's it's decided. Anyone who says real, realtor is wrong? Realtor? Realtor. Okay. I think we got that fixed. Anyway, um, I'm Rob Black. Drop me an email, rob at robblack.com. It's Tony Mendez. You can find him at tony at barrierlonesource.com. It's the Friday Ice Report. Friday Ice Report. Your San Jose Barracuda Hockey Updates. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. But on Fridays, talk a little hockey. Who doesn't love hockey? If you've been to a hockey game, you love hockey. Joining me now, Eric Lindquist, the voice of KDO Debuts, San Jose Barracuda. How are you, Eric? Is it chill in the air? It's hockey weather, Rob. That's very true. November hit or Halloween passed, and it gets down to 40 degrees now, and it's kind of nice. It does feel a little wintry and hockeyish. It feels uh, a little East Coast out here over the last uh, few days or so, and uh, yeah, I'm telling you, it's uh, it's uh, hockey weather for sure. Where are you originally from, Eric? I'm uh, just uh, north of Boston. Okay, so you grew up playing hockey and living the experience because they actually have frozen water there during the winters pond hockey you know it gotcha um so let's talk a little uh barracuda hockey how's the season progressing so far we're a good month in now well the barracuda finally picked up their first home win on sunday it took uh four tries but they picked up their first home win uh san jose right now is at 500 uh through seven games but uh have a, a busy weekend ahead, a pair of home games this weekend, Saturday and Sunday, and, uh, you know, looking to go on a little bit of a roll here. Yeah, just to give you some feedback, there's a couple guys here at the radio station who do the boards while you're doing the broadcast, and yeah. they, they were freaked out, super excited about that home win. It was an exciting back-and-forth kind of game. Yeah, you know, it's... Uh, you know the season's young. Um, you know I mentioned we're 500, but uh, you know right off the bat there's been a ton of movement from the Barracuda to the uh, the big club and the Sharks. Uh, you know the San Jose Sharks last night a home win over Florida, and uh, there were a number of guys in the lineup last night for the Sharks that have uh, already played for the Barracuda this year. So uh, that, that's kind of the, the the excitement behind Barracuda hockey is. You know, I mentioned before, you know, you watch some the Barracuda play on Saturday and they'd be playing for the, the Sharks uh, the very next day. So uh, there's been a lot of movement between the two clubs this year. I was kind of in a backhanded way kind of saying that listening to a radio hockey broadcast is getting guys excited who've never heard hockey or seen hockey earlier or been exposed to it. And when I was like eight, nine years old, I used to listen to Ron Weber call the Washington Capitol games in the bitter, bitter cold of Washington, D.C., and I remember uh, very, very fondly, you know, playoff hockey, and he screams, goal, and you win, and as a kid, it creates a lot of memories, so I highly encourage dads to get AM radio, get their kids close to it, and listen to a game, and if you can match it, um, you know, with that kind of imagination, I think it's fantastic, so just a little throwback memory for you. So back to the San Jose Barracuda and away from me. Um, Well, well, real quick, Ron Weber, um, he had... uh, some of his grandchildren lived in the Worcester area, so uh, he'd reach out to me maybe a couple of times a year, especially during the holidays, and I'd set him and his grandkids up for uh, some AHL hockey in Worcester. Uh, great guy, um, still around the game, and uh, that, that's that's too funny that uh, you, you were a Weber fan growing up. I, I was a wee Weber fan. Like I said, I was like 19 years old. I was a huge Capitals fan, and uh, this is actually kind of – I'm turning this into my segment – there was at one point the Washington Capitals were so bad off financially, they sent players to people's door. So Rod Langway would knock on my door and said, "Do you want tickets to a game?" <laughs> Isn't that kind of cool? Uh, that's great. And if anyone ever knew Rod Langway other than me and you, he had a nose that probably had like 90 degree hook in it because it had been broken so many times playing hockey. And you know what? Our head coach Roy Sommer uh, fought uh, Langway several times in his career, so uh, there's another Barracuda connection there for you. I will have to ask him about that next time he's on. Um, so let's talk weekend games. What we got coming up uh, for the Barracuda? So uh, tomorrow, Saturday, the uh, 
San Diego Gulls are in town. It's the first of 13 doubleheaders at the SAP Center. And uh, what that means is the Barracuda are going to play at 115, and then they're going to have everyone exit the building, and then you can come back in. You need a separate ticket, but the Sharks host the Anaheim Ducks at 730. So uh, it will be real busy on Saturday. And uh, we're also hosting a, a teddy bear toss on Saturday, which means after the Barracuda score their first goal, uh, fans are encouraged to bring a new teddy bear to the game, and you can throw them onto the ice, and, and those teddy bears will be donated to local charities. So uh, we've got a lot going on on Saturday, and then we close up the weekend Sunday against the Bakersfield Condors at 3. So, uh, you know, I mentioned a little bit of a chill in the air, perfect hockey weather. Uh, we'd love uh, for anyone to come on out and, Check out the Barracuda game this weekend at the SAP Center. I'm curious, who is the San Diego Goals, your opponent on Saturday? Who is their NHL franchise they're tied to? Well, it'll be a Anaheim Ducks doubleheader. Oh, gotcha. Uh, so, so we'll have uh, the Ducks AHL team at 1.30, followed by the uh, the Sharks and the Ducks at 7.30. Yeah, you might have said that the first time, and I missed it. But um, how nice is that? I mean, this is actually nice for the Anaheim Ducks big opponent of uh, uh, the San Jose Sharks to have their AHL team kind of travel with their NHL team. Um, is that a benefit that, that was, was thought of, pre-thought of, premeditated? Um, yes and no. Um, you know, the, the, the difference is, is that, you know, Anaheim will uh, take, a, you know, a, a chartered jet, you know, to the SAP Center and, the San Diego Gulls will, uh, you know, take a 10-hour bus trip from down south. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, they won't necessarily be traveling together, but they will be in the same spot on Saturday at the SAP Center. I'm speaking with Eric Lindquist, voice of the San Jose Barracuda, heard here on AM 1220 KDOW. Um, so we got the teddy bear toss. I love that angle, getting kids involved. Um, if you've ever been to a minor league baseball game, they're just more fun. They're more family-friendly. Same thing goes for minor league hockey, right? Well, you know that, that's the whole point. Uh, you know, it's uh, you know we always say if if we can get someone to come out and check out a Barracuda game once, uh, they tend to come back. Um, it's uh, you know it's family friendly. We get the chuck a puck. Um, you know we, we they're you know tickets as low as twelve dollars. It's uh, it's a much different you know a different feel and in a good way than a Sharks game. It's uh, a little more laid back, a little more kind of campy, uh, you know, more focused on entertainment as opposed to hockey. And with uh, $12 tickets, it's also family affordable, uh, which is really, really nice, and I love that angle. Um, we got about 60 seconds left. Any last thoughts you want to throw out there, Eric? Well, you know, th- this weekend will be your last shot to catch the Barracuda for a little while because after Saturday and Sunday, uh, we hit the road for seven games. There will be a lot of bussing. Uh, in the month of November. So, uh, again, uh, Saturday, Sunday, uh, bring a teddy bear on Saturday, and uh, Sunday game at three against the Condors. Uh, the Barracuda are playing some really good hockey right now, and uh, we'd love to have you come check us out, sjbarracuda.com. And, uh, you know, let's get rolling. The fall is here. There's a, there's a bite in the air, and uh, come on and catch some hockey down in downtown San Jose. And some great stocking stuffers and very affordable. It's Eric Lindquist, host, well, not host, but uh, voice of the San Jose Barracuda. I think that's pretty cool. The fact that he and I go back in a strange way to the Washington Capitals, that's even, you know, shows you what a cool community it is. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial. On Fridays, we talk a little ice hockey, a little Barracuda. Check them out, sjbarracuda.com. Listening to Rob Black and Your Money on AM 1220 KDOW and iHeart Radio Station. Every single one's got a story to tell. Everyone knows about it. From the Queen of England to the Hounds of Hell. Talk a little history of real estate because I think you can learn from it. I've concluded that the first open house was actually a cave. 
um, uh, the cavemen, some cave maker Jezebels, decided they wanted to move up to a bigger cave, but they had still the current cave that they were in. Um, and real estate agents were kind of born at that point in time. Um, talked a little bit about the first subdivision, uh, not the first subdivision, but the first home that, you know, had a walkthrough, uh, which I find kind of cool as far as open houses go. I love open houses. Um, on weekends in my neighborhood, if there's an open house on a house that I've always wanted to see, I go in and I see it. I have no intention of buying it, but I actually found a great real estate agent by going to an open house. Um, and again, I'm not looking for the pretty ones. I'm looking for the ones that have some weather on them and know their, their stuff inside and out. Talking a little bit about the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, and they started, you know, the interest rate speculation on how much a mortgage is going to be, uh, whether it's going to be tied in or not tied towards it. Uh, talking about the, the history price of real estate, too, you know, uh, home prices have, you know, they started off, you know, $13,000, and it was a lot of money back then. Um, in 1921, the nation's first real estate bubble um, started. Uh, people weren't allowed to wear puffy skirts. They had to be at least four inches below the knee. Like, our country has changed a lot in 100 years. Just throwing it out there for you. Um, the real estate bubble burst in 1926. There's a steep rise in foreclosure. And the housing market officially sucked. And again, you know, kind of the history goes back to about 1900. Um, homeownership, you know, was not in favor in 1900s. In ni- late 1910s, yes. My 19, late 1920s, it started becoming a problem. Um, 1937, the Washington Daily was a newspaper that actually ran an advertising page for a new house smell. So they put perfume on the advertising page for a new house smell. Now we think about new car smells. You don't exactly think about a new house smell, but when it comes to buying a house, Tony, some people do want the new house that has the new pipes, that has the new wood, that has the new roof and, you know, move in, live in it for 15 years and move out. Almost no maintenance. Whereas I had to buy a house that was... 60 years old, it's, you know, it's starting to weather a little bit and show some cracks. Yeah. I, I go for the, I, I'm a handyman type of guy, so okay. I'd probably go with something. I, no house would offend me, but what what does is that if that house is fixed up and smells great, am I paying too much for it? I think a lot of people always have that fear. It's, it's like buying a new car. Is it going to depreciate right away or did I pay too much for it? Um, so it, it just depends on your taste. A lot of people just have kids and they want to have a clean house and uh, and move in and Get it done with, or they just don't have the time. In 1950, Silly Putty was invented. In 1950, the term realtor was uh, trademarked, and people started walking around and saying, I'm a people person. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of kind of crazy, the history of real estate agents, isn't it? In 1960, a new home cost about $12,700. Nine years later, it was doubled at 25000 The National Association of Real Estate Boards created a national multiple listing system with more than 40-year head start on Zillow. What do you think about that national association, uh, the home listing system, the MLS of this day and age? A lot of people find it monopolistic. Uh, they do. Uh, it's not definitely not the only place to get information about housing. I, you can go to Zillow or you can go to uh, Realtor.com, which, of course, kind of ties into the Realtors. But, I mean, even MSN.com used to have it. I remember in our early days in real estate, I'd go there and you'd see houses right away when you do a search. Yahoo has it. Google has it. You can go to Google Maps and find houses that are um, are, are for sale. So the, the Internet has really changed, you know, how people view the, you know, the access to uh, housing. But the MLS has got a superior amount of information and um and updates uh, on a on a daily hourly basis if you need be, uh, and it's just an invaluable tool, Rob, that realtors need. So in 1960, the MLS was kind of invented and started, you know, helping uh, store information, allowing real estate agents the ability to see what was out there as far as inventory goes. Um, it was considered it's considered to this day a little mon- monopolistic because um, it's it's getting in on it and getting access to that information. Uh, if you're not in there, you're not in there. It's it's you know, you got no game, and a lot of people find that problematic. But 1960 was also the year that birth control was invented, and a lot of women became real estate agents in the 60s and 70s. Uh, husband would go off to work, uh, she would sell real estate on weekends, and uh, I don't know if there's a tie to birth control, um, but I'm just throwing it out there. Five years later, they they invented the urine colored jacket. Um, <laughs> Who was that? Um... I, I, Century 21, right? Century 21. Yeah. Uh, could have been a different company back then that ultimately becomes that. But yeah. do you remember when real estate agents would wear jackets? 
Yep. Do they? Do you ever run across people that do that now? No, not not with the big emblem on it. No. Okay. That's kind of crazy because uh, they're almost like an army. I mean, I, so, they had a my, uniform. Some of my realtors run around with you know Hawaii shirts on. And... <laughs> That's not good. Well, you know, when it's all said and done, you know, the the, the way that the realtors have set up the you know, they use the MLS. They have a great agency um, that allows the, you know, p- other realtors cooperate on on how they do the transaction and access information. It really does benefit the borrower in the long run. Yeah. Whether it does sound um, like a monopoly or not, uh, it it's the best and most efficient way to buy a house today. Yeah. I, I, I know you want I, – I almost want to disagree with it. I, I want more options for people. It's not like you're going to go to you know several different dealerships and find I think it's several the best different... way to control price. It, it is, um, you know, and everything's up for negotiation. That's one thing that people, the first thing that people don't know about uh, realtors and and the commissions that are for, for realtors, they are are um, negotiable. Well, um, I think in the '80s, '90s, early '90s, realtors kind of became holier than thou. Um, I'm going to put a dirty word at the end that rhymes with Mick. Um, just. Because they had the MLS. Like, you can't possibly buy and sell a house without coming through us. Um, just my opinion. And when you're wearing a polyester urine-colored jacket, you ain't holier-than-thou, and you shouldn't act like it. Just because you have the holier-than-thou polyester jacket that's urine-colored. Um, they, I, I, find, I run into some arrogant real estate 60 people. years of incredibly good marketing is what it's been. I'm with you. So by the 1980s, where I'm going to jump all through the 70s because I have no information about the 70s. It was too much for me. It happened too fast. Interest rates, 18% when buying a home. How did we get through that period of time without uh, without homes crashing? Oh, put a put a graph of home prices right over top of the uh, graph of interest rates, and you'll that'll explain everything. And the first house my dad bought at 18% was in the 80s was about $89,000. Now that might equate to a, a you know. Uh, I think that's about a $400 payment today, but that was probably a good $1,000 payment back then. And, you know, incomes were much lower, although a lot of people are looking at the adjustments that are made in to with inflation that our wages aren't any higher than they were back in the early 90s. So we're not too far off as far as what we were making, you know, just after the 80s, but with low interest rates where they are. And uh, a lot more people making more money. That's another thing, too, is we have a lot more people making more money. And home prices have shot up because of that. In the 1980s, we got Michael Jackson being burned during a Pepsi commercial. Um, we got the new Coke was released and ultimately lasting you know, only one year, uh, less than the Michael Jackson marriage to Lisa Marie Presley. Um, but we also got the saving in loans in the 1980s. And we'll talk a little bit about that because if you don't think real estate can fail and if you don't think there was bad loans... I'm not talking 2006. I'm talking the 80s. History has repeated itself, and it will do it again. Take a break here. I'll be right back talking real estate. You can find Tony, Tony at BayAreaLoanSource.com. You can find me, Rob, at RobBlack.com. Find me online at RobBlack.com. Find me on Twitter, Rob Black Show, YouTube, Rob Black Show. You're listening to Rob Black and Your Money on AM 1220 KDOW. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial. I'm fortunate enough that I've got a good contact that feeds me reporters from the International Business Times, as well as Newsweek every Friday. Joining me now, great writer, reporter Andrew Prez with IB Times. How are you, Andrew? Hi, good. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Tell me a little bit about your background as a reporter. Um, Well, I've been at International Business Times since March, and I previously wrote about politics for the Huffington Post. I've also spent some time uh, at nonprofits in D.C. Is this your time, a uh, political year coming up? Is this like the time where you shined? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I'm working with you on this. Um, I just have to imagine that, like, I love earnings season when it comes to money and investing. I have to imagine that, you know, kind of similar for you in political years. But you recently penned a piece talking about fundraising and politics, fundraising from oil and gas. And Give us a little bit of background on why you chose this topic. Well, what we saw with uh, with this story is we, we saw that there was a committee formed by the uh, House and Senate Energy Chairman 
uh, as they were working on legislation to speed up natural gas exports, and um, the committee quickly raised $160,000 from the oil and gas industry. And, um, you know, we, we thought that the timeline on it uh, was, was pretty uh, pretty astounding because $80,000 of that money, so roughly half of the committee's money in total, came a day before one of the lawmakers added provisions to his legislation that would limit the authority of local communities to slow the construction of pipelines over environmental concerns. So it, it was something that we really hadn't seen before. I mean, the, the, the committee's uh, chairs also started what's called a joint fundraising committee where they uh, raise money together and then it gets split to both of both of the legislators. And uh, it, as far as we could tell, that's, that's not a common occurrence where the uh, – chairs uh, in charge of you know regulating a certain industry are fundraising together in such a in such a coordinated way if we were to contact the dead and find my father he died 20 years ago and tell him that the united states would export oil and natural gas he would it would never have been a thought he would that would have been as crazy of a thought as aliens in his lifetime um it's pretty odd for it isn't it uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a big change, um, but there's there's a lot of movement in Congress to increase exports, so, and especially you know with the natural gas boom that we've had in the last couple of years. Uh, it, it's you know I, I think that Congress would like to reduce our dependence on foreign uh, foreign oil. I mean you know of course there's also the issue of environmental concerns that affects a lot of uh, of liberals in Congress, but. It, it looks like that uh, in the next couple months that that we might see, you know, the the cap or the the ban on on like crude oil exports or even natural gas exports just uh, uh, ended. And in your estimations or in your opinion, um, it looks to me from the outside that the amount of money being raised by these joint committees was roughly 92 million back in 2010, according to your reporting. And in 2014, 191 million. That's exploding. Is this the oil and gas industry buying favor to export into business? Is this the oil and gas industry buying favor to, you know, uh, circumvent environmental laws? What's your thoughts here? Well, I, I think that I mean one of the main reasons that the joint fundraising committees exploded is uh, is is a result of the Supreme Court's McCutcheon decision. That doesn't really affect this committee, but uh, the, the Supreme Court ended individual contribution limits across the federal spectrum. Like uh, you can give, you know, maximum like $2,700 contributions to as many candidates as you want now, which is uh, which is a big change. So so that they've become a lot more popular. They're they're very popular with political parties. Uh, Hillary Clinton is is using a joint fundraising committee <clears throat> with the. Uh, to help raise money for the the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, and uh, state parties too, but um, this this one is is just you know I, I mean what we saw here was the money poured in quickly, and the fact that they're raising money while legislation's being crafted to the outsider it looks it looks bad. Um, is it bad or should we just is this normal parts of business that we're not going to get like we should just digest? I mean, it's it's definitely the case that industries seek to you know direct money to the, the lawmakers who regulate them. I mean, what's what's different here, I think, is that again, it's the committee chairs who started a committee to get a fundraising vehicle together, but also just the, the timeline of it, where you know the money is pouring in there like one in, in one case one day before a major change to a bill that would. That would, uh, you know, give the the natural gas industry what they want, in their in that they'll be able to uh, get exports more quickly, that they'll be able to get pipelines approved more quickly. What has the effect of the lower price of oil and just the large amount of natural gas that we keep buying in the United States done to change the legislation angles being bought and paid for? I, you know, I can't really say. I mean, I, I think that Congress is still kind of proceeding in earnest in, in hopes of, uh, of you know, getting uh, of developing more gas in the U.S. and then selling it. I mean, I, I don't know if the price has really affected the politics very much. Plus, you know, I mean, the, you know, in the last couple of years, the, the price of oil has swung so wildly 
and it, it was it was so high for a long time that I'm I'm sure that people still fear it might you know come back. Gotcha. Anything else from your story, Andrew, that you want to share with us that is more insightful than my questions? Um, well, you know, one one other thing we we saw was you know one company that stands to benefit from the the legislation that the the committee chairs are working on uh, is ExxonMobil, and we saw that um, that one of the the top lawmakers, Fred Upton, uh, the Michigan Republican who runs the House Energy Committee, owns a lot of Exxon stock, um, probably at least a hundred thousand dollars between a hundred thousand dollars and three hundred fifty thousand dollars, and you know as we understand that's perfectly legal. So, I mean, that's, I think one thing that, you know, people might be surprised about by here is what is legal uh, in, for, for Congress. Thanks very much. It's Andrew Perez with the IB Times, ibtimes.com. Check out his bio. Just Google his name, Andrew Perez, political reporter. I think it's going to be a fun year for being a political reporter because uh, I think uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, Ben Carson, you can approach them in unique ways, to say the least. 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. It's 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. I probably shouldn't say this, but a little kid who has cancer who might die before Christmas, he asked uh, the people who made Star Wars The Force Awakens if he can possibly see it. His name's Daniel Fleetwood, a uh, 32-year-old resident, fervent fan of the uh, franchise. He's got a rare form of cancer. He's given two months left to live in July. Got to see it early. I'm thinking about making a plea to J.J. Abrams, but I'm not feeling well. <laughs> I got the black lung, J.J. Can I see it soon? Hashtag Rob Black's got black lung. Wants to see Star Wars. Come on, people. Start retweeting it. Rob Black lung. That's awful. Um, 800-516-1220. I guess that's a good feeling holiday story. But like I said, I there's nothing good about me. I'm a person who's rotten to the core who hates old people and wants to eat them uh, because they're Prop 13 and because we're going to have food issues on the planet. And we're going from like 7 billion people to 9 billion. How are we going to feed all those people? 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. Stocks tumbled after a huge jobs report this morning. Huge jobs report crushed expectations. Square's IPO is valuing the company lower by $2 billion than their last round of funding at $6 billion. That is Wall Street being very, very nervous about Jack Dorsey and his place. I tried to tell this story, but I didn't get it out. Sometimes it, that happens. Um, person who cuts my hair, really good looking woman. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the haircut, she's like, okay, 50 bucks or whatever. And she pulls out a dongle. I know you're saying, she's got dong- She's got a dongle? Is that dirty? No, no, no. It's a little thing that plugs in. Swipes a credit card through it. Boom. And she gets paid that day by Square. Um, as an independent contractor, she likes that. So December is going to be an interesting month, not just because Christmas is around the corner. You know what I hate? I hate that Comcast charges for Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Like you can get it on pay-per-view. Hate that. Um, I like the good old days of ABC, CBS, watching the Christmas cartoons. Uh, but now you have to set your DVR like for the day after Thanksgiving because they're all putting them all up front, knowing that you're not going to watch them and knowing that when you do want to watch them, you do that pay-per-view. So liftoff is coming in December. That's the expectations because of the strong uh, labor report that had some wage inflation in it. If we just added a lot of jobs, that would be bad news for the um, interest rate environment. But we added more jobs, and we saw some wage inflation. Did you know um, that the term realtor was registered as a trademark um, in 1950? In 1960, a new home cost about $12,700. By 1969, just nine short years later, it was up to $69,000. Um, is that right? $25,000. So it doubled in nine years. <clears throat> Stock market doubles in 7.2 years, nee, 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 says the stock market to real estate. Um, but try to get that one past people. Won't fly. 800-516-1220. Uh, people believe what they want to believe is, is my strongest belief. 800-516-1220 to get your calls in the air. Anything you want to talk about, we can talk about. Money, investing, and more. Um, 
Drop me an email, rob at robblack.com. It's rob at robblack.com. It's a day after a seminar, so I'm kind of dragging a bit. I just worked an 18-hour day yesterday, so yeah. take a break here. I'll be right back. Visit Rob Black online at robblack.com. Now, back to Rob Black and your money on AM 1220 KDOW. I'm Rob Black talking a little real estate today. History of real estate realtors. Um, these are kind of sort of facts. Like, I don't really know that the first open house was actually done in a cave. I kind of assume that it was. Because didn't cavemen, like, leave and move and find new caves? And what's where did all these caves go? How great would it be to live in a cave? Like, can you imagine if the real estate agent, uh, the real estate industry can get into selling caves? They would do it. They would totally do it. Look at this fabulous cave. You could put fire in it and not smoke yourself to death. Um, because the big pitch right now in real estate is uh, untouched land. So if you can, like, get a piece of Hawaiian land that's never been developed... Uh, it's it's big in luxury. So we were talking about the 1980s and interest rates being at 18%. Michael Jackson burned during the Pepsi commercial. Um, Pepsi did Madonna's Like a Prayer uh, commercial for Coca-Cola. But the whole savings and loans, a lot of people don't talk about. Savings and loans were basically banks. Um, There's deregulations that gave them a free pass to make stupid real estate loans. And they completely forgot that their word was savings in their business models, savings and loans. They just did loans. Um, and they got pretty aggressive about it. And when loans started to fail, when real estate started to fail in the 80s because of the hangover from the 18% interest rates, these businesses, these banks failed aggressively. Um, and it was big news. And that flashes forward to 2006 Bear Stearns and some of the other bank failures that uh, were tied towards stupid loans. So we did stupid loans in the mid-80s, and we did stupid loans in the mid-2000s. So when is the next stupid loan period going to come? If it's every 20 years, we got about 10 more years, and stupid loans are going to roll in. Right now, we've got pretty good loans uh, because of the last set, it freaked people out, and we're, we're now like, you want a loan? Pull down your pants. And, uh, you know, the moon river. Um, it's kind of like a proctology exam at this point in time. They, yeah, leave, I, they leave nothing untouched, and they push against everything. What's, what's a little bit interesting uh, about – Comparing the 2006, seven, and eight to what we have today, Rob, is that uh, yeah, there may have been stupid loans. Home prices went up because of the type of loans that people were getting and the availability to just the you know below average consumer. No offense um, meant there, but the people who didn't really qualify to to today, where everybody who buys a house has to qualify under extremely tight guidelines. So, what what we don't expect to see is a a large dip because of that because we have such a strong you know, ownership uh, pool out there right now that that have that are extremely qualified so i don't think re- history is going to repeat itself in the sense that home prices are going to crash like they did because of the nature of the way people bought properties as we do today i think a lot of people need to look at that as far as the kind of security and into buying houses especially in a place like the bay area where we have such good strong incomes and jobs. Uh, I mean, unemployment is below 4%, I think, as an average yeah. in, the, in the Bay Area. And these are numbers that, if you go back in history and look at places like the 80s and, and you know, the, the mid-90s and, and the recent crash that we had, and just overlap unemployment on top of that, you'll see some pretty interesting and startling facts that jobs drives home prices. Interest rates don't necessarily. I totally agree with that, and you know, interest rates have a, a tie into it. It's not it's non correlating, but it's it's definitely you know something that you can well, the, the talk one about. Th- and but the one thing that uh, also you we we haven't really talked about is that we are buying the maximum to our maximum debt ratios with low interest rates. So where does that is there any room if interest rates go up? So there is the fear that we are spurring a housing boom based on low interest rates and. So we're in uncharted territory right now. There's no room to go down. So where do we end up in 
that 10-year period before we have another weird kind of lending. It may That may be the reason why we have some sort of weird, what you call stupid lending, because there's nowhere else to go in interest rates. So how do we loosen them up? How do we attract more people? How can they afford more? You were talking earlier in the break. It's like, how is your house going to go up any higher? Uh, it's well, you know, somebody to buy your house has to make well above the average income in, in your county, in your city. Right. And is that going to continue? Are, are those houses, are those people already owning houses? And then well, do they ever let's sell? Say I live in a town of 8,000 people and they're all million dollar houses. And, and 10 years from now, they're $2 million houses and it's still 8,000 8, people. Mm-hmm. Um, are those jobs doubling? Like They're not building any cheaper homes. And in, in fact, they're mm-hmm. not building single family residence at all. Um, so let's get back to this. In 1989, things changed for the dramatic big indifference. Uh, Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web. It was not, it was not um, game-changing at the moment. It took a little bit of time um, to really get in. And Al Gore, you know, he said 10 years later, hey, it was actually me who invented the uh, Internet. He said that to Wolf Blitzer, and uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't Al Gore. It was Tim Berners-Lee. But in 1989, you know, Realtors were still loading up their Lexuses with fat real estate listing books and card files and leads. Um, and I think it was perfectly summed up. You know, a lot of people were smo- uh, snorting coke in the 80s. Um, at the end of the 80s, the party, you know, uh, fun-loving American made of righteous souls, the flamers, uh, the yuppies, you know, kind of burned out. Um, Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross, 1992, most famous real estate movie of all time, where, you know, the company, the real estate company would give prizes to people. Do you remember the prizes? First place, uh, knives, and then there was a. The, uh, first place was a Cadillac. Cadillac, and then second place was a set of knives. knives. Third place was, uh, you get fired. You're fired. Yeah. So that's. I love. The, we used to watch that movie, and it's for people in sales. You, you guys probably already know this. They sit down in big meetings, and they use this as kind of a motivational, um, you know, tool. And they go through that whole speech with Alec Baldwin, and yeah. you know, he's got the brass balls in his hands, and he's doing the whole careful, careful. Well, they're brass. I know, I know. Yeah. Just, and he was basically saying you need a cojones to be a salesperson. Yeah. But uh, let's not get me fired today. Let's wait another week. Let's wait another <laughs> week. Um, so also coffee was for closers. And, <laughs> yep. you know, if, like, so people who didn't close deals, they didn't get coffee. Um, and that movie, I, if you really want to see what real estate's kind of like, not all like, but... It has its it, – they want to do a sale. They want to do a transaction. They don't get paid unless they convince you to do a transaction. Second prize is set of steak knives. Thank you, Alec. Um, so there's a big dip in real estate in 1995, and a lot of people thought it was probably people standing around their televisions watching the OJ trial. Um, but it was just a cycle. Um, but it also does show you that you know there's times – where we do get fascinated as a nation with OJ, where there's times when we do say, you know, it's November, December, and we're going to spend time with our families. So sometimes softness or lumpiness, it's okay. Um, that's why you don't look at data in a one-month level. You always look at it at a three-month level. You kind of blend it out. Um, back in the late 90s, mid-90s, Yahoo bought a company called GeoCities for $3.5 billion, just starting to show you how crazy people were at that point in time. Um, but the late 90s, you really started seeing, in my opinion, real estate become a fascination of people. Um, real estate professionals, they always show up with gadgets, the ones that I hate the most. The ones that I love the most, they're kind of frumpy looking. Um, but I once actually blew, I was actually at a conference, and uh, um, there's an old woman there who always gives speeches. She gives the rah, rah, rah speech of, real estate, so great. And she's like the first great-great-grandmother of real estate in San Francisco. Um, and she's got, I call her a silver tip, silver head. Um, but I blew her mind. I'm like, so my house that's worth a million and a half, is it going to be worth $3 million in 10 years? Yes. $6 million in 20 years? Yes. Like, and then I said, no, it's not. You're crazy. It can't mathematically possibly happen because it has to be tied towards wages. Um and she started crying like a baby, and she melted. So I actually killed a real estate professional just telling her that it can't possibly mathematically happen. So I remember in the 2000s when you'd look for real estate, the agents would show up to your house with Palm Pilots, with visors, with Zyres, with Tungstens, with Trios, with Centros, 
with Blackberries. Now they're on their iPhone and iPad a lot. A lot of technology companies started blending in the whole dot-com world into the real estate industry. Um, expensive house, you know, a CEO would buy an expensive house, a whole, you know, Facebook. Um, let's not use Facebook because it's still a little bit too early for that. Um, Yahoo, Excited Home. Um, I came to the Bay Area roughly 15 years ago, and there was a girl who her screen name was Seacliff Gal, and she worked for a company, a B2B company, and she invited me to see her house. And it was a $5 million house in Santa Cruz that she bought with stock options, mm. not even with money, with stock options. And the company crashes. It goes from 100 plus down to two. So she got foreclosed on. But she, again, people were buying houses with paper money tied toward stocks. And there was just this weird blend in the 2000s of tech and real estate. Um, to give you an idea of how crazy, in my opinion, real estate was in the 2000s, you just have to take a look at some of the companies that were popping up. Um, there was companies like Recon and Realty Connection and Rateplug. These are all .coms. Realty Pilot, Realty Trek, Questsoft, uh, ShowingSuite.com. Um, some of these are still around. Some of them are not. More Tech, which was merging mortgages with technology. Mortgage Builder, Mortgage Returns, National Real Tax Trek. So Mortgage Builder is still around. Mortgage, Optimal Blue is still around. Open uh, Close. Websites that were tied towards... Closing your business. Mm-hmm. Um, isn't this, I mean, this is a homes.com, Guardian Docs, where, you know, it helped with the lender in, in live time with documentation. Lone Logics, Mercury Networks, Lone Wolf Real Estate Technologies. So you could see that tech kind of embraced the whole, uh, not only will we buy expensive homes, but, hey, if people are fascinated with real estate and realtors, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll sell to them. And now you just kind of, the public probably just thinks of Zillow and maybe a couple other real estate sites. But look at this. This is a list of 100, um, and a lot of them are completely gone now, and some of them have just morphed into other things. I remember a real estate office. We're online. Find us online. That was a big selling point. We have a website. That's awesome. Um, I love the people in the early 2000s who started trying to sell their house on Craigslist with for sale by owner. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial money, investing, and more. We're talking a little real estate history of realtors today. Uh, don't be shy. You can find Tony at BayAreaLoanSource.com. You can find me at Rob Black. You're listening to Rob Black and Your Money on AM 1220 KDOW and iHeart Radio Station. I'm a big flag guy. I'm very proud of the state of California that I live in. And on our flag is there's a bear. And uh, it was a California grizzly named Monarch who was held at Golden Gate Park. I throw that out there because as you study these things, and I love flags. Let me explain that. When the Giants open up their season, a San Francisco Giant flag goes out. When the Sharks open up their season, a Sharks uh, flag goes out. When there's a birthday in the home, a birthday flag goes out. I like telling people this is what I like. Um, It's a way of saying, in my home, this is what I love and this is what I respect. And we're talking homes and we're talking realtors today. Uh, But did you know that bear on the California flag is essentially a symbol, in my opinion, of suffering. And it's kind of sad. Uh, William Randolph Hearst ran a, a, a publicity stunt in 1889. And that bear is actually lives in the California Academy of Sciences now. Well, he doesn't live. He's stuffed. He's been dead for a long time. And he was actually a last of a breed. Um, you know, the California grizzly bear. Humans extinguished it. So kind of sad. Um, and the symbolic importance of having a damaged animal, of having a damaged race uh, that we've made extinct. It's kind of sad that our flag is that. But I do love the California flag, even in lieu of that. Something else I love about San Francisco. Did you know that in 1867, San Francisco had America's first ugly law, which prohibited unsightly people from showing their faces in public? That has been repealed, but I would like that to come back. Because that's the only negative about San Francisco. Oh, you might have a hard time walking down the street, though, Rob. That's fair enough. Um, in a zombie apocalypse, what city is going to be the safest city to live in? It's probably going to be San Francisco because they don't have cemeteries. Most of their cemeteries are in coma outside of the city. Um, but just saying, just saying, if you ever see a zombie show and zombies are running around San Francisco, they didn't come from the ground. Uh, they, they were bitten. Um, back to the history of realtors and real estate. In kind of my goofy perspective, we're up to about 
the 2000s and the dot-com eras, and we've covered everything from caves to the World War to feminism to birth control and how they all had effects on real estate agents. Um, in 2004, Donald Trump filed for bankruptcy for the third time ties towards real estate. U.S. home ownership peaked at 69%. It's currently right around 60%, I believe. Is that right? I think it's 62%. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's actually down to levels that we haven't seen in many years, 20 years or so. And that can tie into, you know, completely another story that's out there uh, recently that, you know, first-time home buyers are falling for the third straight year. Yeah, we're at 30-year lows, practically. It's you know, second lowest in 30 years. Which bodes well for real estate because, in theory, things happen in cycles and or the low end of the cycle. It's like on Wall Street when valuations get too high. We historically trade on the S&P 500 between 12 times earnings and 22. We're currently at 20. People are like, okay, we should sell because... It's going to go the other way at some point. But it doesn't always work like that, but that's the thought. Are you, say, are you saying the cycle that eventually they're going to save enough money to buy first-time homebuyers? Yeah, I think and so. It, well, I think it also represents 69 is too, is too frothy, but maybe 62 is too lean. You know what I would do right now if I was a realtor? I'd learn Mandarin. <laughs> I, I know that sounds crazy, but a lot of buyers are coming from China. Um, a lot of buyers are coming from China. So... Um, so in 2004, the mortgage loan-to-value ratios hovered around 100%. HELOCs were involved in the ratio. It would creep up to 120%. Do you remember when you could take out, when you could get a loan for a house at 106 to 120% of the value? So you didn't have to pay a thing. It would cover your closing costs. It would cover maybe a down payment on... Not only that, you could make up your job, practically. Stated income. Yep. Liar loans. In 2004, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac purchased $434 billion of subprime loans. What's a subprime loan? Um, under, not, not a paper, meaning your credit isn't as, as high. And Is it a home in the ghetto, or, or could it no, be? No, it's, it's the borrower, not, it's the, borrower, not, not the, the house. Okay. I think there's an association that both the borrowers were, were subprime. They didn't have good credit, but they were also buying um, worse house. No, just the opposite. In fact, that's one of the... You know, the downfalls of, of, you know, home prices in the Bay Area. You know, we went down about 50% here, Rob, and, and, uh, and there's not a lot of subprime housing in the Bay Area. Uh, and to have that happen, you know, Bay-wide, bay uh, everybody was using some sort of subprime loan at that time. And that, that was the, the main default to the, the whole lending platform that we were using. I gave you a list of 100 tech companies that were started in the 2000s tied towards real estate. By 2007, 83% of them were out of business. And again, a, it just shows you the blood sport that we get in of, woo, there's a lot of money to be made here. In the and moment, we know people that got in the industry. They're way out of the industry. Yeah, there, there's a website that uh, that was that popped up. You were talking about websites that popped up uh, in the real estate industry when, it, you know, the, when the Internet started really playing. And there was one as the loan industry started crashing. It was called the Implodometer. Uh, you can still Google it, and it lists. It, it was interesting. You can have alerts sent to you uh, to your phone that would tell you what banks were going under, and it was, a, it was sometimes two or three a day. It was crazy. Um, in the late 2000s, we started hearing, and we haven't heard this in a couple of years. Do you remember the term dist- "certified distressed property expert"? Mm-hmm. Like, what the hell is that? Is there really a certification for that? Not really. No. Um, and you started hearing terms, you know, distressed property for the first time. And the number of foreclosures was up 75% from 2006 to 2007, and it just continued to steamroll. It was just jobs being created that would help because lenders weren't in the business to repossess a house and then resell it. So you'd have these intermediary companies that would work between the realtors and the lenders, and they would be they would help facilitate that transaction. That's would I would consider a certified distressed property sales. In 2004, Donald Trump filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy tied towards real estate. He did it again in 2009 tied towards real estate. Um, I'm just trying to throw in some recent examples of like, it wasn't that long ago when people were having a lot of problems with real estate. And now you turn on radio and television, it's like, it's the glorious, you touch it and it turns to gold business model for people. Um, In 2011, 93% of real estate experts agreed the market would get better sometime in the future, but that in their expert opinion, it was a challenging time. And it was probably the best time to be buying real estate, 2008 to 2010. Um, With that said, there's always going to be bubbles. There's always going to be little ecosystems that change. you got to change with it. 
don't get too locked in. You can find Tony at BayAreaLoanSource.com. You can find me at RobBlack.com. Twitter, Rob Black Show. YouTube, Rob Black Show. And find me on Facebook, uh, cron rob Black. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision.